Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all on this holiday weekend. Good to see you in the back back there, kids. Good, good, nice. All right. Hey, uh, welcome to Redeemer, everybody. My name is Ron Beckering. I'm the director of high school and college ministry here at Redeemer. Uh, Super excited to be bringing you the last message in our series that we've done all summer long on the book of Galatians. Uh, It's been a great journey, and I am super excited to be sharing with you the end of it. So if you've missed any of it, I would encourage you to pick up copies of it or, or podcast the weeks prior so that you can be up to speed. Don't do it right now, but you know, when you get a chance, do that. Hey God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this weekend that we get to come together to celebrate what we consider the end of summer, although this might be the first week of summer we've had. We just thank you so much for the opportunity that we get to come together as one and worship you. This is truly a blessing and an honor. We love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three and a half months ago, we started this journey through the book of Galatians. And at least least we've spent many weeks of this together, and we've come to the end. It's been an exciting and challenging trip, and I hope this study has been as meaningful for you as it's been for me. We've gotten a chance to read the book of Galatians a few times this summer and to see these different things that it says to us and to hear Pastor Rod share with us some of what we find in this book has been great. Time and time again, we've been brought face to face with the grace of God and and, and the freedom in Christ that comes from knowing uh, Jesus as our Savior. And along the way, we've seen the side of Apostle Paul that is rarely found in his other letters. In some of his letters he teaches and he exhorts, but, but, but here he warns and he pleads. This is an emergency letter that was written to the, to the people of Galatia under, under extreme great pressure to a church that is in danger of le- leaving their faith in Christ altogether. And as Paul comes to the end, he wraps up his letter with a paragraph that in, in many ways summarizes everything that he has to say. He does what any good speaker would do. He tells people what, they, what, what, what he has to say. He says it, and then he reminds them of it, what he had just said. And in this paragraph, Paul tells us that he has been, what he has been saying through six chapters of the book of Galatians. Nothing is wasted. Every word counts. And every verse tells us something that we need to know. Now, in this final paragraph, and if you want to look along with me in Galatians, uh, we're in chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. But you look at chapter uh, 6, verse 11. In his final paragraph, Paul gives his signature. He writes this in verse 11. Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. I think through this we learn two important facts from this verse. First is that Paul evidently dictated most of his letter, and that seems to have been a common practice in those times for someone to dictate, especially as they were getting older. But then he added this final paragraph, guys, in his own handwriting. And this would be especially significant since the Judaizers were questioning his legitimacy and his authority. Adding these final comments in his own writing would, would temper some of that criticism that he would have been receiving. Now, the second thing we might learn is that Paul wrote the final paragraph with large letters because of a persistent eye problem that he alluded to in chapter 4, and possibly also because he wished to emphasize his comments. 
I mean, if you think about that, we do the same thing when we inject something to, to, a, to a package or to a letter. Important, read this to a memo in our office. Whether we're doing an, a letter, an email, a tweet, a post online, we'll use a text, we'll use capital letters to let them know that we're shouting, to let them know that this is important, that they see this. And in verses 12 and 13, Paul reminds us that the enemy that the church at Galatia has been up against, what he says in verses 12 and 13 is this, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. This final blistering attack on the Judaizers by Paul, they, they, see, they were seducing these Galatian Christians to give up Christ in favor of circumcision and in favor of Old Testament Jewish law. But Paul levels four accusations against them. The first one is that they're braggarts. See, he says, that, he says they want to look good to others. And then he says that they're bullies. They're trying to force you to be circumcised. And then they're cowards, he says. They don't want, you to, they don't, they don't want, they don't want to be persecuted. And lastly, they're hypocrites. They don't keep the whole law themselves. It's no wonder he wrote as he did to the Galatians. He had nothing good to say about those so-called converts whose purposes were, those, uh, were spiritual seduction. And if you look at verses 14 and 15, Paul compares himself with the Judaizers. In verses 14 and 15, he says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Paul's only boast, the only thing he boasted about, was in the cross of Christ. That got me thinking, what do we give? What are the reasons that we give to boast? Is it our money? Is it our education? Maybe it's our family pedigree. How about our good connections, our great personality, our ability to get things done? Are these the things that we boast about? Do we boast about our good grades, our glittering track record, our popularity with powerful people, our family, our children? our portfolio, our personal achievements, our, our strikingly good looks. I think the list that we come up with could be endless to the things that we boast about. But for Paul, there was only one answer. He says, I boast only in the cross of Christ. To Paul, nothing else mattered. He regarded his family background, his religious heritage, his education, and even his good morality as a pile of manure compared to the glory of knowing Christ personally. And if you want to know more about that, look at Philippians 3, 1 through 9. In 1825, a man named John Bowring uh, watched as the morning light shone on a cross standing in the midst of several dilapidated buildings near the entrance to the Hong Kong Harbor. Later, he wrote the words to a hymn that is still sung today. He wrote, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. 
For Paul, it was all about the cross, and it was all about knowing Jesus. Now, back in 2001, when the World Trade Centers came down, there was a picture that was being circulated in the media of the face of Satan in the billowing smoke coming out of one of the burning towers. Maybe you saw it. The face of the devil appears in the smoke for just a moment and then disappears. And I hadn't thought much about it until I heard about a column that, that was written by Peggy Noonan writing for the Wall Street Journal. She compared that fleeting picture of Satan with the perfectly formed cross unearthed from the rubble of the fallen towers. This is what she says. She said this in Welcome Back Duke, an article from October 12, 2001. She said, if you, are cert- if you are of a certain cast of mind, it is, of course, meaningful that the cross, which to those of its faith is imperishable, did not disappear. It was not crushed by the millions of tons of concrete that crashed down upon it. It did not melt in the, fur- in the furnace. It rose from the rubble, still there, intact. She puts the matter this way. If you are ignorant or superstitious or like she says like her you believe that the face of the devil was not there by chance ditto for the cross found in the rubble did any of this she asks happen by accident now you can argue that either way but perhaps perhaps the lesson that is here for us today is this the devil will take his best shot He'll take the best one he can get. He'll take the best shot, and he'll do whatever he can to change us, but he will disappear in a puff of smoke in a fiery destruction. Later, many days later, we understand that that cross emerged from the ruins of the fallen towers. And guys, the cross reminds us that evil cannot and will not win. It will not win. God has ordained that through the brutality of of a Roman cross that salvation would come to the world. Peggy Noonan wrote, This is how God speaks to us. He is saying, I am. He is saying, I am here. He is saying, and the force of all the evil of all the world will not bury me. Boy, do we need to hear that message today. The cross, guys, is a sign of victory. Through the cross, we have cut our ties with the world. We have said goodbye to the world, and the world has said goodbye to us. And it's through the cross that salvation comes. This is why circumcision, church membership, a particular method of baptism, eventually just become irrelevant. It is Christ and Christ alone who saves. And he saves us by virtue of his death on the cross. The only thing that matters is that we accept the gift of salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for us. Everything else is just details. Verse 16 is Paul's blessing to us. He says, May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. The blessing is Paul's way of extending his hand to the whole body of Christ, to us today. The rule of verse 16 ties directly to the previous verse. Paul has no boast except for the cross. That's the rule of his life. And he wishes grace and peace and loves and God's love to everyone else who follows that same rule and finds glory only in the cross. In verse 17, Paul compares this controversy with his own suffering. 
He says, from now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Now, the word scars here is related to the English word stigmata, which in certain circles refers to the mark on the body that seemed to mimic the wounds that Jesus suffered in his hands, his feet, his head, and his side. Paul's meaning is much, much broader than this. What he is really saying is, you, Juda you Judaizers, you, you can take your little circumcision club and you can go somewhere else. He says, don't bother me anymore. He says, you like to make marks on, your, uh, on the body and call yourself holy? Here are my marks, he says. See the scars? This is where I was beaten. Here is where I was scourged. And I got these marks when I was stoned and left for dead. But there is even more to consider. See, the words, the word marks was sometimes also used for the mark that was put on a slave's body to show that he was owned by someone else. Paul's scars were the marks of divine ownership that proved that he truly, truly belonged to Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is then his benediction. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. To the very last verse, Paul is continuing to hammer this point home. His words are personal. He calls us brothers and sisters. He repeats the main theme and points one final time to the main issue. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so we come to the end of Galatians. Paul has said all that he can say. The question is, what will these young believers do? As he writes his final words, not even Paul knows the answer to that question. And having made his argument, the issue now rests with his readers. Will they choose slavery to the law? Or will they choose freedom in Christ? I think it's fitting that the book ends this way. It ends with an unanswered question. Because in every generation, the church of Jesus Christ faces the same issues in one form or another. The question is, will we choose freedom in Christ? Or will we give in to the temptation to return to the slavery of self-effort and rule-keeping as, as a means of pleasing God? Will we decide that God's grace is not enough and that we need to, to add something to it? Add something to what God has already done for us? I think today our arguments in church uh, are not about circumcision, but we quickly substitute other equally good things in place of the simple gospel. Church membership, baptism, good works, charitable giving, strict accountabilities to the rules of the church, and anything else that exalts our humanness and gives us a sense that we have contributed somehow to our own salvation. Because of the Galatian heresy that is with us today, and because Galatian heretics are alive and well, we need that passionate little book that Paul wrote to the Galatians. I think it's no wonder that the reformer Martin Luther loved it, and I think it's also no wonder that legalists have always hated it. We thank God for Paul to have the courage, the courage to write it. And may we never forget the things that we've learned in this book, guys. But before we leave it, I think we need to take a moment to sum it up. 
sum up this entire book and see what major lessons it teaches for us today in the 21st century. The first lesson is the, that the impossibility of salvation by any form of self-effort. Here is the foundation of everything that Paul wanted to communicate. In Galatians 2.16, he used a little phrase. He used it three times to make sure his readers could not miss this truth. He said, no one can ever be made right with God by obeying the law. The irony of this is that God gave us the law to show us our sin. It's our guardian. It's our teacher that leads us to Christ. The most basic use of the law is to show us how our sin, to show us our sin by causing us to admit it over and over again. That no matter how hard we try, we can never achieve that perfection that the law demands. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, he said we can keep some of the law some of the time, but we can never keep all of the law all of the time. In the end, we're all in the same boat. Every one of us. We're guilty sinners. We're lawbreakers. We're those who have missed the mark. Paul sums it up to us in Romans 3.23 like this. Everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. I don't know many people today who tr try to get to heaven uh, strictly by keeping the laws of the Old Testament. Contemporary Judaism has evolved into a general system of ethical rules that is only loosely related to the Torah. And most Christians that I know don't spend Many, much time pouring over the, the minutiae that is found in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. That's flat out boring. We don't read those books very often. So it's not as if, as if the problem is that we literally try to keep the law in the same sense as the Galatians. But there is something very deep in the human heart that finds the notion of, of God's grace and it's difficult for us to accept. We're all for grace to help us along our way to God, but in our hearts, we still think we need to do something to earn God's acceptance. But that lie, we tell ourselves, is the very heart of the Galatian heresy because we can't make it anywhere on our own. Our future is hopeless unless God intervenes. And that's the hard truth about the human condition. We don't like to hear it, but that's what it is. Until we come to grips with the reality of our own sinfulness, we will never be in a right relationship with God. The bottom line is, we can't save ourselves and we can't even contribute to our own salvation. And as long as we try to save ourselves, we are lost, even, even though we may be an extremely religious person. Until we put away all of our self-effort, we will not and cannot come to Christ. The second one is there is an ever-present danger of spiritual confusion in the church. It could not have been easy for Paul to write this emergency letter. I don't question that in the, last, in the least. He knew before he wrote it that some of his readers would be very angry at him. The Judaizers would use it to try, to, to try and prove his emotional instability. The legalists would, uh, would accuse him of preaching a false gospel. Those who revered Moses would accuse him of dishonoring the Old Testament and making light of the law of God. And some would simply turn away from him as an agitator whose only goal was to gain a cult of personal followers. 
He knew that he would never win over 100%. He would not win 100% of the Galatians. Perhaps many would follow the Judaizers and, and his work might even come becoming nothing. He hoped for the best, but he, but he certainly couldn't know for sure. So what we learn from this is that even the best taught Christ followers may go astray. The price of freedom is that, that we have to always be on our guard. And there are times when we must stand for the truth no matter what it costs. Paul was willing to risk his friendship with the Galatian believers if only he could save them from falling from grace or, or turning to another gospel. Or in this case, no gospel at all. To him, the issue was crystal clear, guys. It was nothing less than the difference between truth and error, right and wrong, heaven or hell. Having led most of his readers to Christ, he now risks it all in order to save them from the false teachers who had bewitched them with some smooth talk and a seductive message. I've known people precisely in this situation. The issues may not be quite the same, but in the end, the result is identical. They come under the influence of some so-called Christians who claim to follow Christ, but openly practice that which God calls sin. They make light of God's word. They deny their actions are sinful, yet they claim to be true Christians. Sometimes people are just badly confused, having been enticed like the Galatians were by friendships and clever words. So we have to be careful to not be deceived and not take anything for granted. Third is the absolute necessity of God's grace. Everything that God does, does for us is on the basis of grace. Our salvation is, is, is all grace all the time. And this is why Paul again and again and again comes back to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification isn't a dusty phrase from some, some theologic, theological textbook. It's a statement about the heart of the gospel. To use a term from the sporting world, justification is the whole ball game. You get this truth down and we've got the truth that can save our soul, that can forgive our sins, that can transform our life, and it gives us hope of eternity with God. We miss the truth and Christianity becomes just another system of rules and good advice. To justify means to justify means to declare righteous. In ter- in, in, it's a term that is used in courtrooms and it's used to describe the verdict in a trial. When a defendant is justified, they are declared not guilty. Their record is wiped clean. The charges against them are dropped and they're free to go because in their eyes, in the eyes of the law, they are innocent. No one can successfully bring any charges against a person who is justified. No accusation can stand. Applied then to the spiritual realm, justification is the act of God whereby he declares Guilty sinners to be righteous on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ. And in my mind, the key phrase is declares guilty sinners to be righteous. It's not as if God takes nice people and makes them a little bit better. Because that's just moral improvement. That is not justification. When God wants to justify a person, he takes an honest-to-goodness guilty sinner and he declares us righteous 
and totally forgiven. God wipes the record clean. A judge who did that on earth would probably be disbarred and then thrown into jail. But God can do what no earthly judge can do because he does it on the basis of the death of his son on the cross. In Galatians 3, Paul explains that Christ became a curse for us. He paid the price of our sins. He bore the load of our guilt. He died in our place, taking our punishment. The price of sin was laid on his back. And he was wounded, it says, for our transgressions. What Jesus did on the cross, he did it for you and he did it for me. The price was fully paid. The penalty was laid on the back of the innocent Son of God. And because he paid that price, all that God asks, all that God asks, is that we believe in his Son as our Lord and Savior. The question is, is Jesus' death enough for us? Or do we feel we need to add something to it as a basis of our salvation? It's all grace all the time. It's not by us, not even a little bit. Our salvation is all God and all grace. Purchased by Christ on the cross, this is the saving message that is given to us in the New Testament. Fourth, the surpassing value of Christian freedom. Many people regard Galatians 5.1 as the theme of this letter. Here Paul reminds us that it, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And having been set free, we must stand in that freedom. We must not let anyone steal our freedom or dilute the liberty that is ours in Christ. Because ha being, having been set free, we have to stand guard to fight off anyone who would lead us back into the slavery of law. As Americans, we understand this more than anyone. Freedom is worth fighting for. And at the prayer service in, in, in the National Cathedral three days after the shocking events of September 11, 2001, I think it's noteworthy that the White House asked for the singing of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Written in 1862 during the dark, bloody days of the Civil War, the original words contained this line, As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. In most modern versions of this hymn, the second die has been changed to live, thus giving uh, the line a little bit more of an upbeat ending to the song. There was no doubt that the president wished to impress upon the nation the true cost of fighting terrorism. I think Paul would approve both of the wording and the sentiment behind it. He understood that Christian freedom, having been purchased with the life of the Son of God, that had to be defended with all that we have. There's no reprieve from the ongoing battle between God's grace and, and human effort as the means of salvation. We can have one or the other, but we can't have them both. So having been born free, let us live free. Having been liberated by grace, let us walk in grace. And having been given been given the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, walk filled with the Spirit, walk filled and in step with the Spirit, producing the fruit that only the Spirit gives. 
To live this way is not natural, friends. To live this way is supernatural. See, the world cannot duplicate it. It has no answer for it. It is nothing less than Christ living in us through the power of the Spirit as we walk with that Spirit day by day by day. And when we do this, the true demands of the law are fully met. That's such a liberating message that the gospel is, isn't it? This is the message the world desperately needs to hear. And more than that, this is the message the world needs to see through us being lived out. And it is the power of the gospel that being, being lived out daily by us, by the Spirit's power, that will change people and will change the world around us. So let me ask you this question. Do you know Jesus? And let me follow it with, are you trusting Jesus today? For the final time in this series, I urge you to accept the free gift that Jesus Christ offers. Trust in him. Lay all of your sins on him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, friends. May God give us faith to believe the gospel and we will never, ever be the same again. Amen.